You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment Deepening Your Practice. It is March 11, 2021, 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. And tonight uh, the practice is going to be compassion for difficult people. There seems to be no shortage of difficult people lately. <laughs> but I thought it would be interesting to uh, actually uh, touch into what it is that makes somebody difficult. Uh, is it for us in particular or is it uh, something general? Um, The um, way that I was always taught compassion practice, or really any of the Brahma Viharas, was a difficult person was somebody who, when I interacted with them, I had problems with them. Um, so it was usually somebody specific that I knew, that I had some interaction with, that there was some conflict in the interaction. And that that can span any of the other categories. It could be a close person or a friend or family, a neutral person, so A, B, C, or D in the Dunbar language. And usually what we talked about is uh, our conditioning, so your own conditioning, interacting with their conditioning creates some kind of conflict in that. But uh, there is also the macro side of that, the bigger side of that, that that you have this way of being, this uh, sense of ethics, this sense of value, uh, of the values that you have, and you attempt to live your life in a way that is uh, true to those values. And then you encounter people who uh, uh, hold different values of you than your own, and often they're in conflict. Um, I wonder, as I've been thinking about this in, in the country that we're in, in this moment in history and uh, different things going on. Uh, for instance, I have traveled many times to Myanmar. And I, I have uh, some friends there that have had to uh, remove themselves from Yangon into the countryside because of the, the conditions that are there now. Um, here, of course, we live in a, in a uh, a country where the, the, we have these two parties that have these very different ideas about how the world should be. And, and, uh, and, uh, and people take action according to that view that they have. I tend to be on the side of uh, equality and many people are on the side of inequality. I think that that's a useful uh, way of being. The um, coming from this Buddhist perspective of non-harming, uh, engaging in the world in such a way that you don't create harm for other people. Uh, and yet my experience often is that other people are actively engaged in harming, that that creates a, a sense of difficulty for them. Um, we do, uh, in some sense, live in a militarized oligarchy um, even though we like to call it a democracy, it's actually uh, the structure of the government is a republic. Um, so much of the money that we use uh, that is raised through tax dollars goes to support our military. In fact, a great proportion of it, the majority of the money that the federal government raises is actually spent on the military. This is in, in contradiction to my own views of how this should be. And so uh, still living in this uh, country as a, as a uh, hopefully full member, how do you reconcile that? Um, how is it that you would like it to be done? Um, I'd like to talk about it in this, this equation between uh, people who are interested in equality 
when people are interested in inequality. Um, one of the things that's uh, remarkable about our system and uh, the way that it uh, has operated is that it started as a system that was based on inequality uh, and it was designed to support that. And so it's been subject to the, these forces of uh, people like myself who think that uh, equality is a better choice and pushing into changing the way that the system operates in a way that we tend more toward. Uh, a distribution where people have, uh, and this is one of the things that relates to attachment, the time, energy, and resources that are necessary to explore what's meaningful to them. This is really where I'm thinking. How do you distribute the resources in a society where everybody is free to then pursue the things that they find meaningful? And what are those bases? What is the basis of that? If you look at a, a monastic, the typical monastic teaching, what they're talking about are uh, food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. This is the, the, what uh, is often talked about as the basics. So then uh, would we, could we have a society where those uh, elements are present and available for everybody? Um, we do tend to live in a very rich nation, and it really isn't that the resources aren't there, it's the way that the resources are distributed. I would add nurturance to that as well, those basic things. Um, I'm not sure what that means. There's a, a message in the chat. Um, at the same time, our obligation to act in accordance with our ethical stance is present whether or not we encounter somebody who's harming or not harming. We're talking about compassion. And so uh, what compassion means is that you're willing to hold the suffering experience of someone else in an attempt to help them uh, hold the experience of their suffering, uh, come back into a kind of emotional balance and then be able to move toward some kind of skillful response to it. The, um, <clears throat> what we know about uh, stress in relationship to people's cognitive mind is it reduces their capacity to respond cognitively and then they tend to become um, more reactive, more uh, emotional, less monitored, less observed. So their mentalizing collapses and then they become reactive and they respond from that reactive place. Um, it creates the intention and action and the karmic thread that follows from the, an uh, inconsidered response to the conditions of the present moment. And so when we react from that place with compassion, we're holding that space for the other person so that they can come back into a, a place of balance and so that their mentalizing can come back online and they have a greater uh, chance to. Uh, uh, form uh, a skillful intention and take a skillful action and mitigate uh, the negative karma that can come from unskillful actions taken. This would suggest, of course, that in a balanced state, they have the capacity to mentalize and understand um, how the action that they're taking, the intention that they're making might play out so that they can mitigate it with a, with a more skillful response. Um, but what we know from uh, attachment uh, study is that the adverse uh, experiences of, of people's early lives translate into uh, a diminished capacity to mentalize. Mentalizing is to be able to 
track your own uh, internal experience, track the experience of someone else, to be able to track the interaction between your experience and the other person's experience and the effect that uh, those two mind states have on each other. Often I think that one of the difficulties in um, maintaining this stance of being open to offering compassion to a difficult person is that the interaction with the a difficult person has a negative uh, impact on your own capacity to mentalize. And if you notice that your mentalizing is collapsing, then uh, you're likely heading to a place where you uh, become uh, unable to not react, not create some unskillful action, which then escalates the exchange between the two of you. And then you find yourself in relationship to the uh, difficult person creating negative karmic threads for yourself in the interaction. So uh, one of the things about compassion, of course, is that it's an empathetic exchange uh, and that you have to be able to regulate not only your own experience in doing that, but also the experience of the other person. And sometimes if that's overwhelming, it's better to disconnect from that and come into a place of sympathy rather than a place of empathy. So you're coming out of the experience of compassion, which is shared into this uh, so solo experience of what's happening, which might be easier for you than to uh, be able to regulate your uh, response. Is that all making sense so far? <clears throat> So compassion is an empathetic experience. It requires that you're able to attune to the other person. It requires good skills at emotional regulation so that you can hold not only your own experience and regulate it, but hold the experience of the other person and help them to, to regulate, to come back into balance. You don't need to solve problems for other people as much as you need to be able to hold emotional space for them so that they can come back into balance. Their cognitive mind can come back online. One of the things about being activated uh, often uh, or feeling unsafe and seeing any of these things is it tends to activate the attachment mechanism. And what we know about that is that the attachment mechanism goes off and then you're seeking comfort and protection from your attachment figures, but at the same time, it shuts off the capacity to explore. One of the reasons why I think that interactions with difficult people become so um, blown up is because uh, the, when the threat is there or their, their fearfulness is there, the capacity to explore turns off. And then that process through which we would find solutions or uh, ways of handling it are no longer available to us because we're seeking protection. Um, anger is often the response that we come to. In compassion, the far enemy though is not anger, it's cruelty. And so you may find that in interactions with a difficult people, rather than coming to a compassionate capacity or a compassionate response to them, your mind uh, falls into the tendency to react in cruelty. Um, you see this in the world, these extraordinary examples of cruelty in response to difficult experiences. In Myanmar now, you see the, uh, the army uh, opening fire on, on protesters. This kind of cruelty uh, becoming a, a, um, and uh, taking people without uh, any explanation or actually any um, <clears throat> way of tracking, knowing where they've been. <clears throat> I was reading in the paper that um, that uh, police uh, are defecting uh, and 
attempting to leave the country and going to India and seeking political asylum because they were unwilling to open fire on the uh, protesters. And so the, they were being punished by the uh, authorities, their own authorities. In fact, they were punishing by their own groups since they are the authority there. So this is a very constant and dynamic topic, this compassion, particularly in these uh, difficult situations that we find ourselves in. In our own country, there's, uh, I tend to think of them as hard right or uh, really fascist, the fascist end of the Republican party engaging in, in uh, a destruction of this uh, collaborative agreement of government we have is as uh, challenging as it often appears. Uh, the use of violence, the use of intimidation. Um, we are a country, America anyway, is a country that is armed to the teeth. There's like three guns for every uh, adult in the country. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. It, this isn't true of other countries. Um, and then the, the, the deaths related to guns in this country is, I think it's more than 10,000 a year. And you compare it to other countries that um, really, if it's a lot, it's uh, 100. So it's at a, at a whole different magnitude. How do you hold this experience, right? Is it just simply putting it out of mind and not paying attention to it? And then putting it out of mind and not responding to it in any way? And then you have in front of you somebody who is really holding this view that I would call uh, the desire for inequality. Um, you may uh, have guessed that I am actually advocating that you come to this view of equality, the, the, the need for balance, the need for a distribution of resources in our country so that um, everybody really has the, the capacity to pursue things that are meaningful to them. How do you then hold this experience of somebody um, that doesn't want that at all and actually would take that from you if, you, if they could? So that's the dilemma with difficult people. How do you hold that space without needing to shut them off, without needing to come into a place of cruelty in order to, to manage the relationship? Christian. Would you say that like overall people's attachment status would explain almost all of this? Or do you think if, if you know, magically everyone's attachment stuff was figured out that there would still be these issues? Um, I, I notice in, in certain um, a certain attachment strategy would, would lend themselves um, more toward uh, an inability to mentalize. Uh, uh, and so you, for instance, the, um, some of these con uh, conspiracy theories that uh, seem to grab people's attention and actually drive behavior, uh, to me, are it's very simple to, to find them completely without credibility. And yet some people do find them to be uh, credible. And I would, or at least I think about that in some sense as a, as a mentalizing issue. If you can't understand uh, uh, the nature of propaganda, which is to tie something that's easily provable to something that is not provable. Uh, and in the hopes that the, the belief in what's true in one aspect of it will carry over to the other aspect of it. 
um, and then you can't uh, mentalize that well enough to really pull it apart and tell the difference. Uh, some of these uh, uh, conspiracy theories seem quite outlandish uh, and uh, um, uh, completely unbelievable. Uh, that's how I, re I tend to respond to them. And yet uh, it is uh, even uh, amongst uh, some of the students I have, it's um, like conversations that, that we have. Um, but often I think there, there's a, the mentalizing isn't uh, uh, so um, underdeveloped that it isn't that you can't tell whether it's true or not. There's another aspect of it, which is that you can uh, tell whether it's true or not, but if it's useful for you getting what you want, then you, you're free to use it to get what you want. And that would suggest uh, another kind of uh, deficit in terms of uh, being able to come into a place of compassion. Empathy, you know, we talk about it in these three levels. The first is this visceral response we experience as somebody else's physical or emotional pain. But if you don't feel uh, your own emotions, you don't feel empathy. If you can't feel empathy, then it doesn't matter what you do to the other person because that automatic braking system, which is empathy, doesn't engage. If you do something to hurt someone else and you're empathetic, you feel their pain in your body and it acts as a break, but you don't continue to uh, harm the other person. But if you don't feel that, there's no break. If you uh, don't um, feel your own pain, your own uh, uh, emotional experience consciously, then it doesn't, you become very cognitive, very cold. It's possible to be quite calculating in what it is that you're doing uh, in attempt to get something that would be satisfying to you. And there's very little regard or, or really very little experience of other people. And so you're free then to, to act in that way. But that would take a higher degree of mentalizing rather than simply not being able to tell what's true and what isn't true. But all of this comes from that early conditioning experience and and the uh, attachment outcomes that are, are less than secure. Secure people, of course, are empathetic. They mentalize well. Um, that isn't to say that you couldn't come to the conclusion that your group is better than other groups and so that your group is entitled to more. Your group is entitled to so much that uh, other groups don't have enough and still come in a way of justifying yourself in that belief and still operate in a, in a basic sense of security. I think that um, there are so many factors that condition, condition uh, what's valuable and what isn't valuable. If you're, if you're not interested in reflecting on that and you just assume that that's actually the way that it is, we have a we for instance one of the beliefs that we have is that the first first person to discover uh, uh, the resource is then entitled to own the resource and benefit it from it but why is that useful we live in a in a society where the distribution i mean uh, i'm old enough to where the distribution of resources was dramatically different than it is now. When I was a kid, uh, as unequal as it was distributed, uh, the top 10% had about 70% of the assets and the bottom had about, well, 30%. If you look at it the way that it is today, the bottom has 12%. That's a huge difference, right? Um, the, uh, the upper 10% has like 87% of everything. If you look at the top centile, they have 50% of everything. Right? If you look at the top 100th of a percent of our society, they have 20% of it. They have more in the top 100th uh, of, of a centile, uh, of a percent 
than the whole bottom 50% of the country has. It's an extraordinary uh, inequality, which has mainly been uh, accrued through the tax system. Uh, when I was a, a child, the top tax rate, rate was above 90%. Um, and so there was, there was a, a distribution of um, income between the, top, the bottom uh, fifth and the top fifth, which was about 20 to one. Now it's like, depending on who you read, uh, 450 times the bottom from the top. Uh, real wages have uh, declined because there's been no pay increases. You know, the, the, uh, we, we talk about the $15 minimum wage quite a bit, but we have also had the same wage for what, 20 years? But inflation hasn't been zero for 20. So every year that uh, the, the wages have raised, the, uh, the, the actual earned income in, in relative dollars declines. So the, depending on where you are in the bottom 50%, you've lost half to 70% of your earning power over that period of time. Whereas the top has gone up by hundreds of percentages. Um, so certainly not fair, right? Um, but uh, some people believe that that is an appropriate system. Um, it does come with, you know, uh, two million in, people in prison and a militarized police force that routinely uh, kills people on the streets. All of those things are are part of this. I'm talking about this in terms of the difficulties that we face and uh, the meaning that it has uh, in these interpersonal relationships we have when, when these uh, views that people have are so different. Can you uh, be in relationship to somebody that wants to strip you of your civil rights and how do you be in relationship to them, if that's what's happening. Still understanding that if your intention is to be an ethical person, uh, that your intention is to be a compassionate person, you're not relieved of the obligation then to in some way respond in this situation to that person in a compassionate way. How do you respond to somebody who is the source of their own suffering through their own actions? This is the conundrum of compassion for a difficult person. So I think that uh, because it depends on the conditions of the present moment, in the present moment, can you hold the compassionate space? Can you allow yourself to be empathetic with the person who is suffering? And can you keep your balance and uh, not be knocked off balance by the experience of the other person's suffering? If you can do that, then of course you can hold the space. And if you're knocked off balance by the experience of the other person's suffering, then, then you, you actually don't have the capacity for compassion in that moment. So it becomes less a cognitive understanding of whether you appreciate or you don't appreciate the point of view of the other person, but the experience of the person in front of you in the moment that you're there with them and allowing this process of compassion to unfold, the attunement to the other person, the allowing of the empathetic exchange, the experience of their suffering and your than willingness to hold the suffering experience of the other person and to help them come into uh, emotional balance so that their uh, uh, cognitive mind can come back online and their capacity to mentalize can come back online. And it, it, it may or may not make them less difficult because if they're 
uh, cognitive mind comes back on and their capacity to mentalize comes back on and they still think uh, that uh, they should have more than everybody else uh, and that as a result of that other people should not have enough then there you are, put down. And there you experience it. And does it relieve you of your obligation to act on behalf of the community? But hopefully it will keep uh, um, you from slipping into a, a reactivity and then creating a, a negative uh, karmic thread for yourself. It is possible to oppose uh, uh, ideas and actions that people take with kindness. It doesn't have; they don't have to be opposed with anger. And in fact, to oppose these ideas with kindness is actually more likely to produce the uh, uh, capacity to engage in this in these activities for the duration of time that it's going to be necessary to engage in them to get anything to shift. Um, I grew up uh, in, the, uh, in the 50s, and so my adolescence was in uh, the mid to late 60s, and there was you know, peace and love and this sort of hope that we could uh, end uh, war at the time we were talking about the Vietnam War. And uh, the inequality was great, but not nearly what it is now. And so if you look at the trajectory of the last 40 years in this country, uh, all of that uh, has been eroded. You know? And we're in a, in a, in a much uh, less uh, advantaged place now than we were 40 years ago. And that that happened through a succession of, uh, of decisions. In some sense, this agreement that we all make for, for these things to happen. There's a Zen saying, um, which is that everything is the way that it is because that's how we all want it to be. In some sense, all of us together, the accumulation of all of our actions uh, end up in this place where we are. One of the things that energized the anti-war movement was that there was a draft. And so you, were, you would be called up. Um, we don't have a draft now, so maybe you don't know how they work, but there's a lottery and they assign a number based on your birth date. And then they call through the numbers uh, to get enough people to go into the, the military. Um, it, it, the army that we have now is the volunteer army. And uh, the way that they've made that work is by um, uh, uh, taking people who need to come into the army uh, and uh, mainly based on economics. And so uh, it's a very different population that's in the army now than that you get from uh, a draft, which uh, runs across the whole society. The, the, educated classes, the college kids of the time sat out this anti-war movement until they couldn't get enough soldiers uh, for the war that they removed the exemption for college students. And once they removed the exemption for college students, it energized the class that had power to do something about it. And so that, that movement against the war took shape based on that. Um, they eliminated the draft because it eliminated the op opposition to the war, to the war machine. That's why we have a volunteer army. If everybody was called up, and everybody had to go, and there were no exemptions, we would not be uh, able to engage in as many uh, conflicts as we engage in because um, people would not tolerate it. But as long as it's a disenfranchised group that has to go, there's very little opposition to it. 
so this is this piece of, of actually taking on these difficult uh, um, uh, structures in our culture and uh, attending to them and uh, formulating a response to them so that we can be present for what's actually happening and present for the permissions that we're given or giving. If you pay your taxes, you are part of the, the war. You are supporting it. And how does how do you hold that sense of it? That you're contributing actively to this thing that is causing so much harm. And then what do you do to mitigate that? Since it creates uh, karma. Um, so this is this topic for me of, of difficult people, difficult situations, and the need then to be able to respond still in a compassionate way. So we practice that um, in formal practice, formal sitting practice. Um, mainly in formal sitting practice, we're not focusing on uh, the compassionate response. We're focusing on the willingness to respond in a compassionate way. How do you do that? So we take in an understanding of the, of the difficult person we're going to focus on and over and over again, reinforce the mind state of compassion and hold the experience of that in relationship to the uh, difficult person uh, in an exercise of developing this capacity to uh, be willing to hold the suffering experience of someone else. The untrained mind tends to just reflexively turn away from pain to reflexively turn away from suffering. And here we need to uh, override that and remain open, open to the compassionate exchange, willing to be in the suffering experience of someone else. So that's really uh, what's at issue in this uh, practice. So we'll pick an, a difficult person to work with. You do want to be able to succeed in holding the space. And so um, don't pick somebody that immediately throws you into cruelty or immediately pulls you out into sympathy. See if you can uh, pick somebody that you can uh, um, experience the difficulty of them and then still hold the mind state of compassion. So go ahead and take your meditation posture and we'll begin. So how did that go? Christian. Um, I have a, a, so I got pretty concentrated and I almost kind of had a headache so I was wondering if I was doing it too much and I kind of backed off and found maybe a, a more relaxed uh, I don't know it seemed like a jhana to me if 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 that's a, uh, a thing my question is how does getting into a jhana from this mind state actually help me out in real life in being more compassionate am I not sort of overshooting what would be the actual experience of being compassionate with someone? Well, you're developing concentration, so you're able to place your attention where you want to. And you're also training yourself to be able to have agency in which mind state you hold. So that when you're confronted with somebody's suffering or some difficulty, you have agency to hold the mind state of compassion and then to be able to respond from that place. Um, whereas if you couldn't do that very well, you, you could easily get knocked out of the capacity to do it. That would be the main reason why. Also, one of the things that can happen 
is that you just reflexively turn away. You're, you're not even really conscious of doing it, but you have the, uh, uh, you're, you empathetically experience somebody's suffering. Uh, it exceeds the window of tolerance and you just cut it off. And then the other person experiences that as rejected, that their, their empathetic experience is unwanted by you. You, it, it can happen so quickly and, and uh, be subtle enough that you don't even detect that that's what's happening. Uh, and it, it really does change the whole tenor of the exchange. Um, so it really is sensitizing yourself to that and really being able to be aware of it when it's there. That whole process really. Is that good enough? I think so. So are, are you saying that like in the jhana, you're building concentration and you're you're saying that in the actual practice of having compassion for someone actively, like when you're interacting with them, concentration is actually an important part of, of that process. Right. Well, you, you want to be able to place your attention and say, hold the suffering experience, but also you want to be able to hold a mind state. And so in order to maintain the object of meditation in this way of practicing, you have to be able to maintain the mind state. You, you develop the capacity for that. Okay. Good. Someone else? Jacqueline? Go ahead, Austin. I think he was going to... Oh. oh. Um, hi, George. Um, I was wondering if you could point me to um, some additional reading on today's topic. Um, I'd appreciate it. Compassion? If, uh, yeah, I'd like to work on that personally. Okay. Um, well, let's see. Um, the uh, the the jhana practice that I teach is mainly taught by uh, uh, Indika Sayadaw, uh, and he has a um, let me put that in the chat. Let's see here. Um, but his, his manual is on metta practice. So if you Google who Indica Sayadaw and Metta, you'll get the manual. And then just uh, substitute compassion practice for the Metta practice. Empathy training is really done through noting feeling states technique. So thanks a lot. Okay. In order to be able to experience compassion, you have to be able to experience your own emotions in real time. And so depending on where you're starting, that may be the starting point. Just doing tons and tons of uh, noting feeling states technique, you have real sensory clarity of your own emotions. And then you can begin to separate the four different types of emotion that you want clarity with. Uh, reaction to the present moment, self-generated emotion, uh, empathy, and then the somaticized emotional experience. Someone else? Jacqueline? Yeah, I um, thank you so much last week for correcting me on not trying to create situations and make play do scenarios, but that really helped me this time around. Oh, good. I really, yeah, I just, I think I understood now. It's like, I'm focusing on the mind state that I'm in when I'm encountering that difficult person. And you might still, like I did still see not necessary situations, but that feelings that arose when, you know, I was having a difficult interaction with them. And what I discovered is I was either trying to fix the situation or run away from it. I was either like, you know, trying to find some, I wasn't being able to stay present either way, whether right. I was trying to fix it 
or remove myself. I wasn't present. And so, and then I also found myself like really judging the other person and wanting to fix them, <laughs> you know? Right. And so it, it, instead of having that, I just tried to accept the person as they were. And then, I, yeah, it reveals a lot about myself and it just allowed, allowed me to accept the person as they are and um, just kind of not be moved by what the other person is doing. I'm in my state of compassion, regardless of what's going on around me. So thank you. And hopefully mm -hmm. as I practice, I can sustain that. Good. Yeah, really the idea is that you help them to emotionally regulate and then they're back in shape and they can solve their own problems. You don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> and ex not expecting people beyond what people's limitations are. They are who they are. So accept them as they are. <laughs> All right. Good. Someone else? I'll go. Hi, George. Hi. It's Lara. Um, so today I had. <laughs> an experience with I've been having um, with my neighbor downstairs because I have a Zoom and I do a martial arts class and I hear her go dung, 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 back to me. And I get it, like the lobby has come up and knocked on my door and said, she's a little upset. And so today <laughs> I was like, dun, 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 I hear you, but it was reactionary. And then I was like, oh, I, I get, it may be disturbing. Um, and I called the lobby and I said, could you just tell my neighbor that it's only going to be an hour and I'm not meaning to, <laughs> can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. To do this. And anyway, I was just thinking of her in this meditation now, and I work in a home with foster girls and they also react and I have the same experience as Jacqueline just now. She's like, I want to fix it. But I guess you're saying this is sort of regulating them by just sitting with whatever's coming up for them. Right. Kind of thing. And then tonight, I also... You're helping them emotionally regulate if you can. If I can, right. How do you, just by sending them? Well, like, empathy... Uh, <laughs> You attune to them, so we're attuned. Can you tell my attention is on you? Your attention yeah. is on me, and we can experience that. And then yes. opening it. to an emotional exchange, which is unconscious and automatic. Mm -hmm. Then I have the sense of my own emotions, and then I have the sense of your emotions. I can mm -hmm. read partly mm -hmm. your emotions by your facial expression. Can't see your mm -hmm. body, so there's no input there. But then mm -hmm. the feeling state in my body arises, which I associate with mm. you. Mm -hmm. And that's different than my own emotions. Mm. I see. Then uh, I bring my emotional regulation skills to the experience. So if I have uh, uh, my, the empathetic experience is, is not as intense as you would feel it or mm -hmm. as my own emotions. So it's mm, easier for me then to bring uh, my, my capacity to regulate that experience and then as it's exchanged uh, in our empathetic exchange, you get mm -hmm. my emotions, but you also get your emotions back in a more regulated state. And that, that exchange- I see, got it. Brings mm -hmm. uh, hopefully both people into balance. Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah, if you go the thought... other way, the suffering mm -hmm. experience overwhelms you and then you're dysregulated. Right, <laughs> that's what I've done. <laughs> That's the worst. But I found myself tonight too saying, like, though it was to her, I came back to me. I'm like, please, uh, whatever, the, um, may you be free of pain and suffering. And because I guess today I had a, a hard day. So it was, it was nice. Good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> and then maybe a plate of cookies. <laughs> would be helpful. I had Brussels sprouts for dinner. So that was good. Well, I mean, Leave a plate of cookies by her door. Or yeah, that's true. <laughs> I see. Exactly. Good idea. <laughs> Follow through. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. It's only Thanks. an hour day. I'm so sorry. All right. So you're not giving up anything up but trying to make peace. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, great. That's a good idea.
friendly neighbor. Okay, thanks. All right, everybody, thank you so much. Um, let's see what's happening. The, the level two class is sold out, so you can uh, be put on a waiting list and, and you'll get first dibs for the next class that's coming up if nobody drops out of this class. Um, and then uh, in April, at the end of April, I think April 24th and 5th, I'm doing a weekend uh, meditation and addiction retreat, which is focused on a relapse prevention and also on uh, working with the attachment uh, uh, conditioning that causes uh, addiction. Um, in June, I have a retreat coming up. Um, there's still quite a few spaces left for that. It's a little early yet for that to fill up, but if you're considering it, it's a Saturday to Saturday uh, in, in the middle of June. Um, we do have scholarships available for the retreat, so uh, take a look at that. We're going to start uh, another level one in July, uh, and uh, we'll do the, the three day-longs of the level one, and then we'll do the uh, um, the cup, the uh, meditation and attachment for coupling, which is for everybody. And then I think in the in the in the fall we'll begin another Dharma maps uh, series of day longs. So that's what's coming up. Um, I have this class. I also have the class on Tuesday. Uh, we're starting a meta cycle in the the class on Tuesday uh, next week. Uh, this class. Uh, Next week, we'll finish with compassion. And then the week after that, we'll start uh, looking at uh, um, uh, the uh, enlightenment path uh, and set aside uh, temporarily the attachment stuff. Uh, thank you for coming. I offer the class on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. So I, I offer the teachings freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation to support me and the work that Metagroup is doing. There's a link on the website or in the email that you might have received about the class. Uh, of course, if you're not resourced, please come to the class and don't sweat it. Uh, we as a community are happy to support a place for you to practice. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks, George. Good night. Bye, all.